Our text is Nehemiah 8, 13 through 18. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Good morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and we pray, Holy Spirit, your presence to be with us, to help us to see these scriptures for what you want us to gain from them. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I had the privilege to teach at a church that had a couple of sites and was really blessed to be with them, but always good to be back home. And so here we are continuing our series in Nehemiah. And a couple of weeks ago, we left off at verse 12 of chapter 8. And so if you're new to our church here, we just go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so here we are, verse 13. At the end of chapter 12, we found that the people of Jerusalem were gathered at this public square, expectant to hear from God, and they were actively engaged in this expectation to hear from God. They wanted to hear from Him, they wanted to encounter Him, and by the time that they left that gathering, they were left with joy and peace and hope. Their gathering entailed this time of teaching of the Scriptures and the worship of God, so When you look at our gatherings, we kind of use this as an example, the teaching of Scripture, the worship of God. And one of the questions I have for us is, are we tuned into and wanting to hear from God? Do we want to encounter God? And by the time that we depart from our gathering, hopefully we leave with the same thing that those people left with, joy, peace, hope, because we encountered God together. Verse 2 tells us they assembled on the first day of the seventh month. So here we pick up verse 13, which is the second day when people returned to study the scriptures. Here's verse 13. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. We see that the leaders were gathered around Ezra to study the words of the law. Now as leaders... We need to study the scriptures. We need to understand it. We need to apply it properly so that we can positively influence those who look at us as examples, whatever that context may be, whether it's in family, in ministry, at work, at school, for us to prepare ourselves in how we influence people because we do have an effect on the people around us. How are we, as people of influence, as leaders, to use our influence, to use our leadership to effectively lead people to God. 
one of the key things that we need to know and we need to understand is the Bible in order to lead people to God. We also need to be aware that we need to live out what we are teaching. When you look for someone to teach you about finances, you look for someone who lives that out. Right? You look for someone who knows about generosity, what tithing is, what giving of offerings is, what saving is, what living within one's means is. When you look for someone to teach you about parenting, you look at the fruit of their parenting. You look at how they discipline their children, how they disciple their children. You look at whether there is a mutual respect between parents and their children. When you look at marriages, you look at the fruit of the marriage, right? You look at how spouses treat one another. Is there trust and respect towards one another? Is there love in there? How do they resolve conflicts? Is their communication good? And so the same thing is for learning about the Bible. Are the people teaching it living it out? And we know that we're not going to be perfect, but what is the fruit of the people that you're listening to that you're influenced by? And when we look for particular fruit, whether it's learning about the Bible, financing, parenting, marriages, whatever it may be, you look for things specific to what you're learning. For example, when you look at finances, you don't need to have someone teach you who is outgoing or gregarious or a good networker or extroverted, all these different things. You just want someone to teach you about finances. So those personality things, hmm, not that important. When you're looking at someone mentoring you about parenting, you don't necessarily look at if they're good at running a business, right? If you're looking at someone who's good at whatever it may be, you're looking for that specific skill. Same for people you learn the Bible from, whether it's a pastor, an elder, a ministry leader, whoever it is, that person needs to study the Bible. That person needs to understand the Bible. That person needs to live out the Bible themselves in order for them to teach you about it. It's out of the ordinary to ask someone for marriage advice if they're not married, right? So it's the same thing with the Bible. It's unusual for you to ask them about biblical teachings if they don't even read it, if they don't even study it, if they don't even understand it, if they don't even live it out. And so we see the heads of the father's houses, priests, and Levites gathered around the scriptures to study them. And this is a hope we have for our small groups here at the church. For each group to study the scriptures together so that it can be understood and applied to each person's life. Now I know some groups are studying different parts of the Bible, but hopefully... Each small group is a place where the person can bring their questions from their individual studies or from what they're hearing on a Sunday gathering or from whatever kind of platform of Bible study they find themselves in to bring those questions into their small group and ask their small group study leaders, I have this question, and for them to explore that with one another. Looking back to verse 13 again, you notice that they gathered around Ezra. Now, the point isn't that Ezra is like super special. The point is his function, his role is what is special. He was a scribe who had the words of the law, whose function was to teach and to help the people apply what they were learning. And this function continues on this very day, and it stems back to the times of the prophets and kings and apostles, evangelists, pastors, teachers of old, 
God has gifted some with these functions for the local church to dedicate their lives to the study of the Bible, the understanding of it, and living it out, applying it personally, and to teach it to others to apply it in their own lives. So it's not that Ezra is so great. God is who's great. God is the great one. And he is the one to give these gifts for these functions, these roles. Now I look back at my own life, and I look at who's influenced me, who's led me to God, and yes, they were, they are great people, but what the more supernatural thing is, what the God thing is, is their role, their function that they played in my life. Because during that time, God gifted them with the abilities to bless me in such amazing ways to apply the scriptures in my life and to live that out. And many of you have these people in your lives. And sometimes they aren't great people. But they played a role in your life to lead you to God at some point in your life. And it could have been a friend, a pastor, a Bible study leader, whoever it may be. Both me and my wife were heavily influenced and led to have deeper relationships with God by people who weren't or are not the greatest Christian examples of followers of Jesus today. But God used them. And we all know It's not about the people because people change. It's the function that God uses at the time. People change, but God always fills that function, that role. And even though people change, God's word does not. And what has passed on to me, what has passed on to you remains. Even though we may ignore it or we may neglect it, the function played its part, and what was imparted to me, what was imparted to you, has greatly influenced us regardless of who that person is today. I say these things because the church that I was preaching at was really damaged by their former pastor. And it's not the person. We can't look at the people. Now, it's not to say that the people who spoke the word of God are not important. They are. You look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. It reads this. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Meaning, you look at the outcome of their life and if it is good, imitate their faith. If it's not Don't imitate it. See, we don't imitate the faith of those whose outcome of their lives are in contradiction to the Bible. Jesus is the same even when people change. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So we follow Jesus. We follow his word. Never changes. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Jesus and his word, they never change. And we imitate the faith of those whose lives have outcomes consistent with the scriptures. We all have Ezra's in our lives, and thank God for them. People are important, but we don't put all of our faith in people because people change. 
We put our faith in Jesus. We put our faith in his word. And we realize he has appointed people into the function, the role of an Ezra. And so they gathered around Ezra in order to study the words of the law. So these conversations were had, questions were asked, applications were sought after, relevance was desired, changes to one's life were welcomed. We want the scriptures studied here. Why is this? James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Not just hearing God's word, but doing God's word to be transformed by what we study. And looking to James chapter 1, there are some things that prevent us from this life transformation. Let me just point out a couple of them. The first one is anger. Not the righteous anger that we've spoken about here when we're dealing with injustice, but the anger that most of us struggle with that is not righteous. James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It is impossible to reach into someone's heart, their mind, their spirit when they're angry. You can't reason with someone who's angry. In order to reach an angry person, we need to de-escalate that emotional state before we can reason with them. Anger is just this really thick and high wall to get through. So if that anger is present, the scriptures don't flow into someone's life who's full of anger. Second thing that prevents the scriptures to transform our lives is filthy and wicked thoughts and actions. James chapter 1 verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Our thought life has a huge impact on whether the scriptures will be transformative in our lives. And if those thoughts are impure, it has great impact on our ability or inability to receive from God's word. The more we allow filth, and wickedness to enter into our lives, the more difficult it is to receive from the study of the scriptures to the extent that it transforms your life. You can read it and you can hear it. You can show up here on a Sunday. But if you're wondering how you can be physically present, how you can physically read the Bible and just kind of read through the words, but you don't sense the spiritual change in your life, take a look at the filthiness and the wickedness in your life. It's probably why. What are you looking at? What are you thinking about? What are you having your mind ponder about? You might even know a lot of the Bible because you've been a Christian for a while. And you might even be able to understand it. You might even be able to teach it. But if you find that your life hasn't changed very much in the past several months... Because God is always changing us. God is always maturing us, always developing us. You need to take a look at your thought life. 
Verse 14, Nehemiah 8, And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. This happened through the study of the law. So here they are studying the law of the Lord, and then they're reminded of forgetting about this feast. And this feast is the Feast of Booths. It is found in Leviticus chapter 23, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as Sukkot. Now let's take a quick look at Leviticus chapter 23, starting in verse 33. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days is the Feast of Booths, To the Lord. Now, to summarize this festival, this festival was to commemorate, to remember their times as sojourners, pilgrims, aliens through the wilderness when they didn't have a home. And so, this was to help them remember that this was a time for them to celebrate God's provision as they were wandering out there in the desert, that still God delivered them during that wandering time. Years of wandering, and for them to remember where they came from before they entered into the promised land. And to thank God for all that he had done for them, all that he had done to deliver them and to provide for them during all of those challenging years in the desert. Now keep in mind, we're in the second day of the seventh month, right? Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 13. And according to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 39, on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. Number two, second day, and it's only a few days away. These guys need to get ready for a party. Now, you recall this remembrance was not because of Ezra. It was because they were studying the scriptures and God revealed this to them through the word of God. It's not like Ezra was the one like spearheading this or saying like, hey, I have an idea. Why don't we create this festival and do this thing? The words of the law were brought before them that they could see that. Something that they had neglected for a really long time and it was something that they found in their studies. It was the scriptures that changed them. It made them more aware of God's presence, that they weren't doing something that God told them to do. And it reminded them of God's deliverance, His provision, His love for them. And if you're having a problem sensing that with God, what's holding you back? Is it anger? And attached to anger often is unforgiveness. Bitterness? Resentment? Is it filthiness? Is it wickedness in your mind, in your heart, in your actions that is holding you back from receiving from the Scriptures what God is wanting to tell you? That even if you read that you needed to do a Feast of Booths, you would just bypass it because it wouldn't even touch your heart because you have this thick wall of anger or wickedness, filthiness blocking you from it. And it's in their studies that they found instructions on what they were supposed to do, and then they did it. Is there something God has instructed you to do, but you haven't done it? God instructs us to forgive those who have wronged us. Do we? God instructs us to give of our first fruits. Money, time, talents, 
to him. Have we? God instructs us to live in fidelity in our marriages. Do we? We're instructed to be baptized after we've repented of our sins and have received Jesus as the Redeemer of those sins. Have we? If we truly listen to the Word of God, it will change our lives to be more obedient to His Word. That's what it did for those in Nehemiah's day. That's what the Bible does for us today. And that second day, as they were reading all of this, they rearranged all of their future days because they needed to get ready for a party on the 15th day. So all of their priorities, their plans, their finances, everything changed because the Scriptures were revealed to them. Have your hopes, your dreams, your plans, your finances changed to reflect that you are obeying the Word of God? Or is it just a bunch of words? No change. And to commemorate their time in the wilderness, the people would live in booths. Verses 16 and 17. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. This is what people did to remember what God had done for them. They, they built these roofs, these booths on the roofs of their house, in their gardens, in their yards, in public places, and they lived in them during this festival. Now you keep in mind that they didn't celebrate this festival for a very long time. So when people started building these booths and they're popping up all over the place, those who were familiar with Leviticus chapter 23 probably thought, cool. We've forgotten about this for a very long time, and this is great. This is great for us to remember what the Lord has done. While others, because they haven't celebrated this in a really long time, probably thought, what are they doing? That's foolishness. That's nuts. They're just going out there, collecting pieces of wood, coming back, and building these little huts. What for? And the same thing is happening in Israel this very day. That there are people during Sukkot, during the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, that they build these booths this very day when you go during that time. So one year we were there during our pilgrimage, we were there during the Feast of Booths. And people were wondering, hey, what's going on? Because people, you would see like these little tents and things start appearing on roofs of houses and in yards and things like that, especially in the more orthodox areas. You'll see this if you go to Israel today, that in the more orthodox areas, these booths just start popping up during Sukkot. A lot of the Zionists who don't look at Leviticus chapter 23 literally think those Israelis are nuts. What are you guys doing? That's silly. That's stuff that was done way back when. Why are you guys doing that? That's stupid. And others who recall, God did indeed deliver us from slavery. God did indeed deliver us from bondage. They are celebrating with a lot of rejoicing, with a lot of joy. Here's a question for us. Who would you be? Would you be the type of person that would go out, go get some branches and start building the booths? Or are you afraid that you would be looked upon as just silly, ridiculous, crazy? 
Would you do what others perceive as crazy if God instructed you to do it, even if others you know, Christians you know, haven't done it in a while? For example, evangelism. There's a lot of people, a lot of Christians who believe that evangelism is just kind of silly, that it's all about relationships. We have to build relationships first and then we evangelize. Really? Does the Bible say that? They just evangelized. They just shared the gospel with people that they were told to share it with, that they were led by the Spirit to share it with. They didn't spend four years trying to develop a relationship. The disciples were discipled in three years. Or that you live to give sacrificially and generously. I've met a lot of Christians, especially in the Bay Area, that you know, you're talking to them. And at our church, we believe in the literal tithe. We believe in giving out sacrificially. We believe in giving of our first fruits. But then you tell them, yeah, we believe in giving 10% of our gross. What? That's crazy. How can we live? We live in one of the most expensive places in the world. How can we give like that? Are you going to make a booth? Like praying to God in public. Are we any different from someone who doesn't follow Jesus? Are you a booth maker? Are you a booth maker? See, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Are we any different? Do people even know you're a Christian? That you're thankful to God for what he has delivered you from, for his provision in your life. I'm so humbled by my own children in this regard. None of this was my prompting at all. I have a first grader who has a very devout Catholic family friend, another first grader friend, pretty amazing family actually, really strong Catholics, and he's Scottish, and she's Chinese, and their child is a red-haired hapa. Like, it's amazing, it's awesome, with blue eyes. It's the most amazing thing. And I love that kid. Our two kids, at recess, they pray openly for all of their friends that don't know God. So they're there asking their friends, do you know God? And they're like, we don't believe in God. There's no God. They don't debate him or anything. They're like, okay, thanks. And they go to the next kid. And then they have this list of kids that don't believe in God. And at recess, they pray for them. I'm amazed. I didn't tell her to do that. And so you go at recess and you'll see them too holding each other's hands and just their heads bowed. And they're just praying for their friends. And so they'll tell me, that, hey, Dad, today we prayed for this, this, this person, this person, this person, and I know that their parents are atheists because we've had these conversations too. So it prompts me to pray for that family too because my seven-year-old is praying for them. And we're out at a restaurant, and oftentimes it's not that I'm not reverent to God or that I don't want to pray with God. It's just my stomach is just so idolatrous, and I just start eating, right? And so my kids are like, Dad, Are we going to pray? Yes. Sorry. (laughs) 
we're going to pray. And so we pray before our meal in front of, you know, a lot of people at a restaurant. We're just praying. And when they pray, they're not shy about it. They're bold about it. They have gratitude towards God for their family and for the provision that we get to eat. And their hearts are towards those who don't know God. How many of us have that gratitude towards God that we would publicly display it? Like at a restaurant. Like at the school playground. Like those who are setting up booths for the feast. It's for all to see. We're not hiding anything. And you know what? It goes back to the word of God. For those of us in positions of leadership, in positions of influence, to be obedient to God and to impart what we study, what we learn, what we understand, and apply it to our families, our small groups, ministries, so that those in our sphere of influence go about affecting their spheres of influence to lead those people towards God. You see how important you are to the kingdom of God? If it's not you who shares the gospel at your workplace, your neighborhood, your school, your family, your friends, who is it? Who's going to do it? If it's not you, who is it? And you look back to the very beginning and the very end of verse 17 here. And all the assembly, and there was very great rejoicing. Everyone was there. Everyone was celebrating. Do we have that excitement? Do we have that enthusiasm over what God has delivered us from and through? Over his provision for us? Are we all together? All the assembly rejoicing about this. Verse 18, and day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, they were there. There was a solemn assembly according to the rule. As a church, I don't think we've strayed from this at all. I don't think the elders would let me stray from this, and nor would I want to stray from this, from reading the book of the law and then going through it. That is a constant of our church. It will always be a constant of our church. One of the things that I'm fearful of, though, is being caught up in the ways of just modern church, that we get caught up in programming, that we get caught up in outreaches and ministries and all these different things about church and not just simply reading the Bible. And one of my concerns also is that this is filtering down into our small groups. Is your small group trying to do more than just simply studying the Bible. Do you know that this church was started by simply studying the Bible? The guy that I was doing the Bible study with, never in my wildest dreams did I think that we were going to start a church. Especially under our leadership. Like, we were like, well, who are we? We're just kind of Bible guys. Like, we just want to go through the Bible. Never in my mind did I think we were going to start a church. If it's not about studying the Bible, you're missing out on a significant part of your spiritual transformation and probably missing out on some really great rejoicing. The opportunities we have to draw closer to God through his word, through our gathering together, through our application of the Bible in our daily lives, through our celebrating, rejoicing for having God's presence in our lives, but will we draw closer to him? Or are we going to get distracted from the things of the world through the things of whatever it may be? 
Because people need you. And people need you to know the Word of God. People need to hear about Jesus from you. Because you might be the only person at the job, at the school, at the neighborhood, whatever setting you find yourself in, who knows Jesus. You may be the only one. Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 17. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we give too much credit to ourselves when we realize, Lord, it is your word. We think that it's the specific words that we say or when we say them or those types of things. And Lord, we forget the elements of faith, the elements of grace, the elements of the miraculous and the supernatural through you. That even through our bumbling and through our lack of tact and through all these different types of things, Lord, you use it. And Lord, that is not to say that we have been given license to be obnoxious and to be distasteful and lacking tact when we share your word, Lord. But I'm afraid we've gone too much the other side, actually, God, that we've been so sensitive and politically correct that we're so afraid to be bold. And so, Lord, would you fill us with your spirit, fill us with boldness and courage to share your gospel with people because it is your word that will save them. It is not going to be us. In Jesus' name, amen.